The scripture reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 13 through chapter 10, verse 20. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as if it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time. For strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life. And money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Well, thank you, Kim, for reading, and good morning, everybody. If I've not yet met you, my name is Kyle Hackman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church Toronto. We're glad that you're spending this time with us. Before we reflect on this passage, I'd ask you to join me in prayer. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we now come and look at your word, we trust you've left these words for us, your church, and yet they're somewhat cryptic and difficult to understand. And so as we reflect on these passages, we do pray, Father, that each and every person who has heard your word read and now spends some time reflecting on this, your word, that we would end this time by saying we heard from the Lord. We heard a word for us. So by your spirit, speak to us, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Was it worth it? 
That's the question everyone's been asking this past month or so. After years in war in Afghanistan, much of the Western world, after watching the final withdrawal of troops, is asking, was it worth it? And in some ways, that question is complicated and complex, and I won't venture to touch it in a sermon. But the preacher in Ecclesiastes is putting a similar question before us as we pursue wisdom. Is it worth it? We've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. The author of the book is called The Preacher, and the preacher has wanted for us to gain wisdom. But he needs us to understand that there is a vaporous nature to life, that life is frustrating and elusive, almost impossible to control. And the preacher has gone out of his way to say there is no way to insulate yourself, whether that be through power or pleasure or wealth. There's no way to game the system so that your experience of life doesn't include this vaporous, frustrating nature. There's no way to rise above that. And as we come towards the tail end of the book, I believe the preacher is asking us to wrestle with this question. Can wisdom help us rise above the vaporous nature of this world? Will wisdom make life not frustrating? And the preacher's answer, which he has consistently said from chapter 1, is that even wisdom itself, the very thing he had the most, more than anyone on earth, the very thing he wants to impart to us, wisdom can't help us rise above the frustrating nature of this world. And so the preacher wants us to ask, is it worth it? Is the pursuit of wisdom worth it? Is living by wisdom worth it? What advantages do, does wisdom get? Is it worth it? If wisdom gives us no advantages on the frustrating nature of our life, is it worth pursuing? This passage is somewhat tough, and it's very difficult uh, as the subject matter seems to shift as you move down. I'm guessing as you heard it read, it just felt like uh, someone who's hyped up on too much coffee and their brain is bouncing everywhere. But I do think there's a common theme that the preacher is putting before us as we get to the end of the book. I'm convinced he wants us to stop thinking foolishly about wisdom and to start thinking wisely about folly. And as he does that, he is going to help us understand that wisdom is worth it. It has its advantages. So this is what I want to look at this morning. The way that the preacher is giving us these series of Proverbs, which are teaching us to stop looking foolishly at wisdom, but also to, stop thinking, to start thinking wisely about folly. So first, let's look first at stop, the way in which the preacher is telling us to stop thinking foolishly about wisdom. How does he teach us this? Well, the, he, the preacher wants us to see that it would be foolish to assume that wisdom will bring us recognition. He's saying, stop assuming wisdom will bring to you recognition. This is the preacher's point, I'm convinced, in verses 13 through 8, you see in the passage, where he tells this parable of a poor but wise man who by his wisdom, we have to presume, saves the city. He comes up with a strategy, makes a plan, tips off the right official, and the city is saved. Wisdom is more powerful than weapons of war. The city is rescued because of wisdom, not because of military might. And yet, this poor wise man receives no appreciation. He receives no recognition. Wisdom it is foolish to believe that wisdom will bring you recognition. 
The preacher continues to make this point in chapter 10, verse 4 through 7, when he highlights the fact that it, wisdom itself can't win over a king when he's in fits of anger. Can't win over management when they are frustrated. The wise person does not have the tools to win over someone in their frustration and receive rightful recognition for their wisdom. It's better for them to lay low. Wisdom won't guarantee you the position that you ought to have on this earth. That's his whole point of he's seen slaves mounted on horses and princes walking. His point is that there are great leaders of this world, people with tremendous leadership uh, gifts and insights who are currently right now trying to figure out how to obey the orders of people who are over them who are not natural leaders. The preacher's point, don't assume wisdom will be appreciated. Don't assume the wise path will be celebrated. Wisdom rarely wins a democratic election. Now, this isn't to say that the preacher wants us to look for the person who loses the democratic election, look for the most extreme minority and say, aha, wisdom must be there in the losers. No, the preacher's point is that wisdom is not recognizable. And so the preacher would say, be skeptical about those who are loud. Be skeptical of the popular thought leaders. Seek, listen closely, search to appreciate those who come forward with quiet, simple, but maybe nuanced answers. Learn from them. Wisdom will not be recognized, but it is better than weapons of war. It will save a city. The fool assumes wisdom will bring recognition, but the fool also assumes that wisdom will bring some kind of refuge. We see this in verses 8 through 11 in this passage where we see um, what would have been to the original audience something like ordinary occupations. Someone would dig a pit. This is possibly a way in which they would hunt. They would chase animals in. They'd fall in the pit and they would have uh, food to eat. Uh, yet the wisest of person can dig this pit and forget where it is and still fall in. They could clear out a stone wall to expand maybe their field. And yet as they're clearing out the wall, a snake that is burrowed in the wall could still bite them. As they deal with stones, there's still a chance they'll be hurt by stones. As they split wood, there's still a chance they'll be hurt and injured in the process. The one trying to tame a snake is attempting a noble task, but there's still a chance they will be bitten before the snake can be charmed. Wisdom doesn't provide safety insurance. It doesn't provide a shelter from the ordinary pains of this world. This is a frustrating world. The wise and fools still get in car accidents, all get stung by bees. The wise still burn their hands when they're cooking. Yet wisdom is superior. It says, sharpen the axe so that when you work, you work smarter, not harder. Sharpen the axe. It will, put, it will result in less effort in your work. And yet... The wise is still vulnerable to an accident with the axe. There's no actuarial scientist that can perfectly calculate and eliminate risk from your life. And even the wisest person in this world is still vulnerable to the frustrations of this world. It would be foolish to say, if only I could get wisdom, then I would be protected from risk. Don't be a fool. The preacher wants you to get wisdom. There's a huge advantage to wisdom. It will save a city. It will save your efforts at work if you work smarter, not harder, if you sharpen the axe. But don't expect recognition. And don't expect some kind of refuge from the ordinary dangers of this world. This is a frustrating world. You won't rise above it. 
This is how fools think of wisdom. Now let's talk about the way in which the preacher wants us to start thinking wisely about folly. So he's warned us to stop thinking foolishly about wisdom and assuming wisdom will bring recognition and that wisdom will bring refuge. Now he's saying, start thinking wisely about folly. And the first way he goes after this is he says, think wisely about folly. Don't assume you can control folly. That's, that, there's a series of, of, of proverbs buried in here that are making a similar point. Don't assume you can control folly. Look, a, a dead fly can fall into the most expensive of fragrance, the finest of Tom Ford, and it will rule the ruin the entire bottle of perfume. Chapter 10, verse 1. That's the point of this story. A little folly outweighs the weight of wisdom and honor. Costly things are vulnerable to contamination, just as wisdom is vulnerable to a little bit of folly. One sinner destroys much good, as the preacher says at the end of chapter 9. So if wisdom is so easily polluted by just a drip of folly, should we give up on the pursuit? No, no. That's the preacher's point. The, the wise person goes to the right. Easy to make political jokes here, but in, in the audience's time, the right hand was the hand of power. The left hand was the position of weakness. And so the wise person goes towards the right path, the position of power. The foolish person goes towards the position of weakness. It is still worth pursuing folly. But a king who parties at the wrong time can take down an entire nation. Verse 16 through 17. One fool can overwhelm. The world is filled with stories that show this to be true. One second of lack of discretion on the internet will ruin your entire career. And the preacher's point is, on this world with frustration, with, with uh, exhaustion built into everything that we do, we are extremely vulnerable to folly. Wisdom has its obvious advantages, but folly is extremely dangerous. It's a matchstick in a dry forest. Wisdom will not give us perfect protection from fo folly. One drop of folly can contaminate wisdom. Don't assume you can cover for folly. All of the work at a meat processing plant can be voided with the insertion of one harmful piece of bacteria into the batch. So also, as foolish thinking comes into your mind, it can ruin wisdom, which has been cultivated for years. Listen, ours is a world where we know this. There are very reasonable, smart, hardworking people who also happen to believe the earth is flat. A little folly, though, will ruin all that wisdom. Don't assume you can cover over a little folly. But don't assume as well, not just that you can cover over folly, but that you can also convince folly. That you can convince a foolish person of their folly, or that you can, if you got caught up in folly, could be convinced out of it. The fool cannot be convinced she's a fool. She hears her foolish words, and she announces that she's a fool as she walks, and yet she continues to walk all the bolder, assuming she is wise. This is the preacher's point. The fool's heart pulls her towards the position of weakness, towards the left. The fool announces to everyone, I'm a fool, I'm ignorant, and yet in so doing, they think that they are showing wisdom. They are showing maturity. Fool folly cannot be converted, and it cannot be convinced. This is not how wisdom and folly work together. This is why there are numerous proverbs in here that says, when the boss is angry, when the ruler is angry, don't assume wisdom can convince a person in their anger to calm down and be 
more rational. In fact, chapter 10, verse 4 says, When the ruler is angry, just lay low. No matter what you do, you can't convince them. The fool can't control their tongue. Their mouths dig deeper and deeper graves. To quote Mark Twain, It's better to keep your mouth closed and let people think you are a fool than to open your mouth and to remove all doubt. Don't assume that you can convince folly, that you can educate yourself out of folly. Verse 15, the fool works and works and works and thinks he's making progress with his labor, thinks he's rising above the vaporous nature of life. He climbs the ladder, assuming once he gets to the top, he'll finally be happy. But in the end, he works himself to exhaustion. He gets delusional. He no longer knows up from down. You see, wisdom can't be convinced, it can't be instructed, it can't be coached away. This is the preacher's point at the end of the reading that we just had with the sloth roof sinking in or with a house leaking. Then you get these uh, proverbs that seem kind of contradictory. Bread is for laughter, wine gladdens life, money answers all things. I think the preacher's point is this. The fool has the right answers. The fool knows what needs to be done. They just never use them at the right time. Wisdom is not learned like a technical skill. It can't be learned like a trade. You can teach someone that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bushel and that nothing ventured is nothing gained. What you can't teach them is when to use one phrase and not the other. When to make the risky investment, which will have a large payout, and when to opt for safety and security. The fool can't be convinced. And this is what the fool does with the preacher's teaching thus far. The preacher has been trying to tell us that ours is a frustrating world. There's no magic key to get rid of the frustrating, the vaporous nature of life. So what does the fool do? The fool assumes he can throw his hands in the air and assume that life is all despair, all, all folly. And he seeks pleasure, hoping to numb himself to the folly. Or he seeks wealth, hoping to insulate himself from pain. But the preacher has been saying, the path of wisdom is a path of faith, not despair. It's a faith, though, that allows you to eat, drink, and be merry, knowing full and well that death is right around the corner. Because you know that there is a God who's so much greater than you, and his plans are so mysterious, but you do know he's worked things out for the good. And in the frustrating moments and the ones of joy, you walk by faith that this God is working out his plans for the world. You are like a child, but you have a loving and smart heavenly father. The preacher wants us, despite the lack of outright advantage wisdom has, to see that wisdom does have advantages, and he wants us to pursue wisdom, not folly, because he knows that as we are on the path of wisdom, eventually we will run into someone who was never recognized for the power with which he had, the way in which he worked not to save a city, but to save the whole world. Eventually, as we're on the path to wisdom, we will encounter someone who is never fully appreciated. He was despised and re rejected, experienced great torment, completely misunderstood. He couldn't find refuge despite his great wisdom and even found his life ending on a cross. And despite teaching the world the greatest of wisdom, he could not convince the fools. He could, as he hung on a tree, in agony, he could not show the fools of their great foolishness. The preacher knows that eventually, as you pursue wisdom, you will find that wisdom took on human flesh. 
that wisdom walked into our earth and took on a human nature. It was wisdom incarnate that was obedient even to death and death on a cross. And as wisdom lay dead in the grave, God saw what had become of the world that he created and he resurrected wisdom, gave wisdom new and unending life. And now wisdom in, is embodied, a, embodying a life in which there is great relief from the frustrating nature of this world. It's wisdom who, though died, made a way for life to come unending when no one saw it coming. Listen, this is the good news we celebrate every week. Jesus was wisdom in the flesh. Wisdom was alive, wisdom died, and wisdom rose from the dead. And the preacher knows as we pursue wisdom, we'll eventually find that wisdom is not some abstract virtue. Wisdom is a person. And when we meet Jesus, wisdom in flesh, when we trust in Jesus, when we say, here is what wisdom looks like, I will follow, we'll find that the unending life wisdom has gained for Jesus. The unending life will be the unending life that wisdom will give to us and will give us the power to continue to strive forward in this frustrating world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of the preacher, though they're cryptic. May you bury some of these proverbs deep in our mind this week. And as we pursue wisdom and turn from folly, might we find our loving Savior, Jesus Christ, waiting for us. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, this time, I'd invite you to rise and join Alan in singing one last song. This is My Father's World.